Shift is sponsored by Gentex Corporation. Gentex is a longtime supplier of electro-optical products for the global automotive, aerospace, and fire protection industries. Visit Gentex.com to check out the latest in digital vision, connected car, and dimmable glass technologies. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm Pete Bigelow, your host. Hi, everybody. It's Leslie Allen. Welcome to the show. Joining us on the podcast today is Chelsea Colbert, Senior Policy Counsel at the Future of Privacy Forum, who will be talking to us about all things privacy-related in the transportation realm. But first, Leslie, I, uh, I have big news this week. Yesterday, I got my first CES-related email of the year. So, so th- about three months out now, and, and suddenly I feel like it's time to start thinking about CES which is going to be a in-person event this year. And I think they have some, uh, some online elements as well. So a hybrid event, but, but apparently all plans are going forward. How do you feel about that? Well, um, I guess it's a sign that um, life is starting to return to normal, uh, whatever normal is anymore. But um, yeah, it's going to be a hybrid event. And I believe they're expecting a much smaller crowd, which uh, is fine with me. <laughs> Because, um, but yes, it's it's good to see things are starting to uh, turn around a little bit. You know, naturally, I'm, you know, a little skittish about crowds right now because of what we've been through for the last, what, 18 months or so. But it'd be um, exciting to, to get back there and to um, catch up on what's happening with um, all types of technology. So here we go. I'd be curious, maybe I can throw a survey on Twitter or something later, but I'd be curious what our, our listeners think about CES, if they're planning to go, if they are sitting this one out, uh, and how, how their plans are developing. But, but clearly, I think it's probably even earlier than usual that here in early October, I've got the first email about, about scheduling for CES. Anyway, there's other more pressing things in the, in the immediate uh, timeframe uh, taking place now. We had big news this week from, from LG Chem and and General Motors uh, looks like they've settled uh, a little bit on their electric battery fiasco. Yeah, this is that recall of what 143,000 volts, you know, because of uh, a manufacturing defect that led to uh, an increased fire risk with the battery. And this recall is costing General Motors $2 billion. And Apparently, um, they've reached an agreement with LG to um, have the Korean company cover $1.9 billion of that. So um, that's um, it's unfortunate that this happened, but at least they reached a deal and um, just hope that they can resolve this issue and get those bolts back on the road. They are not off the road, but they're advising people, you know, to uh, be careful. Yes, they're they're not parked. They might be on the road, but they're not parked in garages uh, because exactly. the EM had issued that guidance to not park your car in the garage, which uh, I think was eye opening for a lot of people. Uh, anyway, we talk about electric vehicles a lot nowadays, uh, but one of the issues in the transportation realm that uh, is not always on the front burner, but always seems to be simmering in the back burner is is privacy in and how we move around, uh, and it's uh, it's all over the place. Really, there's Questions from uh, ride-hailing services to e-scooters to autonomous vehicles. 
And, uh, and Chelsea has a terrific handle on all those issues, which are wide ranging. So perhaps without further ado today, uh, let's go to our conversation with Chelsea Colbert from the Future of Privacy Forum. Chelsea, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really look forward to this. Yeah, likewise, likewise. Uh, let's kick this off and set the stage a little bit for the discussion. Just for those who don't know, what is the Future of Privacy Forum and, and what sort of work do you do in the transportation realm? Yeah, so uh, the Future of Privacy Forum, or FPF, is a DC-based DC global think tank. Uh, it was founded about a decade ago. Um, and really what we want to do is provide a non-advocacy-based thought leadership on a wide range of emerging consumer privacy issues and emerging technologies. So we bring together a lot of different stakeholders from industry, from governments and academics. And I lead FPF's mobility portfolio, which is pretty broad. It includes connected cars, automated vehicles, micromobility and delivery robots. Uh, but FBF also has counsel working in other work streams, such as smart cities, um, whom I work with quite frequently, um, education, AI and biometrics, as well as our global and U.S. policy tracking. Uh, we also have offices um, spread over really the world now. So our main office is, like I said, located in D.C., uh, but we also have offices in Brussels, in Israel um, and in Singapore. How did you get interested in, in some of these topics and was it, was it privacy you were interested in first uh, and you then got into mobility or, or vice versa? Yeah, so I, I do get asked this a lot. I think um, it's kind of common when people ask about the origin story. So I've spent some time thinking about it. Um, I am born and raised on a small island in the Atlantic Ocean. So um, at that point, it was even more geographically and figuratively isolated than it is now. Uh, for example, when I was growing up, the only ways that you could leave the island um, were by ferry or plane. So there was no bridge. There is a bridge now. Um, so I was growing up in that environment, you know, pretty sheltered from the rest of the world. And I remember getting my first computer uh, with my first operating system and, of course, dial-up internet. And it really, I think, changed everything. It, it opened up the whole world. You know, I was chatting with people all over in chat rooms, using Messenger. Um, and of course, I, like many people, was also using Napster. And I remember getting a copyright email from Metallica's lawyers. And I don't really know what I thought at the time. There's no way that I really could have comprehended all of what that meant. But kind of looking back, I think maybe... That was that first moment when I started thinking about laws and the internet. And then, you know, fast forward years and years later, um, I pursued law school with the intention to be a technology lawyer. Um, I'm not really sure where this motivation came from because I'm a first gen student. Um, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. I didn't meet any until I was in university. So I don't know where that really came from, but I thought I would do copyright and internet law. Um, but while I was working as a research assistant, um, my passion for AI and robotics was sparked. And I really have to give credit for that to uh, the late Ian Kerr. So since then, uh, my whole career, I've really pursued um, either jobs, roles where 
I see, you know, the, the merging of the physical and digital worlds. And that really fascinates me. So I think that's what led me to work um, in house at a smart city company, and then here at FPF. Kelsey, I have sort of a broad question for you, if you'll indulge me for a minute. How much privacy should a person expect while traveling? And and does that expectation change depending on the mode of travel, let's say a personal car versus an airplane? Yeah, I mean, this is a really great and tough question right out of the gate. Because uh, <laughs> privacy, the, the challenging thing about privacy is that it means so many different things to different people and it's really cultural. Um, and we try to codify it with laws. So there's what is considered a reasonable expectation, either through the culture, the norms, the laws, and then there's your personal expectation of privacy, which can change again, depending where you are in this situation. I think we've seen with traveling um, in airports, obviously there's that reduced expectation of privacy, as well as that trade-off for giving up some of your individual privacy in return for personal and societal safety. Uh, but when it comes to other modes of transportation, I would like to think that there doesn't have to be such a trade-off. Um, to me, mobility is, is like privacy and that they both are human rights. Um, so I kind of, I, I take that thread with me throughout all of my work. So mobility to me, you know, is that freedom of movement. Um, it means moving around, feeling safe, um, enjoying how I move around. You know, I love using e-scooters to get around and do errands. I like using a car share program. I use my own bike a lot. So I think there should be that enjoyment in mobility as well. Um, but I would like to, I would like to hope and, and believe that we don't have to trade or give up our privacy to continue to use new modes of mobility. Well, speaking of new modes of mobility, um, with all of these new ways of getting around, um, there are new questions about privacy, you know, particularly in places like Los Angeles, where city officials have been collecting information from ride hailing services and scooter companies. So um, what kind of data are they collecting and um, what are the privacy concerns involved with that? So what what's happening with, um, well, what started with the LADOT and the collection of data from scooter companies is actually a really interesting story. And I think um, it might be really interesting to listeners to kind of hear about the backstory of what led um, to that question about the data. Um, and again, I say this because context and nuance is so important when it comes to privacy and data collection. So I think that, that it's really important to situate it within um, that timeline of events and for folks that might not be aware. So it goes all the way back to 2017. Um, a lot of companies were putting dockless scooters, dockless bikes all over the city. Um, and this was for, you know, consumers to be able to pick up a scooter really anywhere. And I think it, it was that game changer in providing, you know, different types of mobility options for people. But at the same time, it was causing some concerns. And I remember reading the news articles from this time about, you know, scooters kind of being placed all over since they didn't have to be docked. 
you know, they were placed all over. It was causing safety concerns on sidewalks. I remember seeing images of, you know, scooters just thrown into rivers and other bodies of water. So there was this challenge of how do cities regulate, you know, what's going on in their public right of way. So going into 2018, uh, the Los Angeles City Council, they passed an order ordinance that uh, compelled the LADOT to implement a pilot program. And this would require mobility device operators for scooters, for example, that wanted to do business there, they would have to seek out a permit. Um, and another condition of this was that um, along with being able to operate in that geographic area, they, these companies had to agree to share certain data with the city. And then that's where we see the introduction of the mobility data specification, or I'll just say MDS. Um, so the LADOT actually developed the MDS and it's actually pretty neat. So it facilitates the data sharing between mobility service providers um, and local governments, but it's more of a two-way communication. Um, so that is pretty interesting. Now uh, the MDS is actually managed by the the Open Mobility Foundation, um, and we can talk more about them later. Um, but the MDS is a set of three APIs, um, and that's application programming interfaces. And these are protocols that allow data to flow securely between the cities and the providers. Um, and it's also interesting when you think of MDS as a kind of digital infrastructure, um, it's a way for cities and companies to share information about what's happening and manage the mobility devices together. So the types of data that is shared includes the status about the vehicles, for example, the battery level on a scooter, um, as well as the location and the routes. Um, so any type of data about the device itself. Um, and although the MDS data doesn't include personal information, for example, someone's name. So that's not something that's shared. It still is possible based on uh, the root data of the scooter, the origin and the destination, the vehicle ID, some of these different types of data points in combination, especially when you have it in combination with other data that could be available, that you can use this information to re-identify someone and track individuals. Chelsea, I know there's some legal actions going on uh, with this very specific to, to our Fourth Amendment rights, but, but maybe even more broadly, what, what are the concerns that come up if my, if my you know, location data is being shared? Right, so location data, um, even when it is stripped of direct identifiers, can be revealing of someone's life habits, um, their behaviors, their preferences. Um, in many cases, the mobility data that's shared through the MDS from scooters or really any other type of mobility data, it might not appear um, personal on its face, but it could reveal sensitive details about that individual or about groups of people. Um, and like I said, it's, it's also possible that these different pieces of location data could be combined to re-identify specific individuals. There have been a lot of different studies. There's always research coming out about this. Um, 
and real life um, re-identification attacks being done to prove this. Um, one study showed that mobility trace data from a sample of 1.5 million people was processed um, with time values generalized to the hour and spatial data generalized to um, typically about 10 to 20 city blocks. So the researchers found that with four randomly chosen observations of an individual can put them at a specific place in time. And that was sufficient to uniquely identify 95% of the individuals. Um, so these different spatial um, and temporal, and that's really when you start to uh, increase the sensitivity of this type of data when you include the spatial and the, the time temporal points. And that can be collected through a lot of different sources too that could be added in. Um, for example, you have different mobility traces in combination with uh, payment or credit card data, um, internet usage, or just the old fashioned way of, you know, just going out and actually observing people with your own eyes to re-identify someone. What are the benefits to a city of obtaining this kind of data? This is a question that has come up uh, quite a bit by activists, uh, critics of cities using the mobility data specification. Um, the, critic, the critique is usually, you know, why can't you use anonymous or aggregated data? And what we've heard is that cities want this disaggregated, or sometimes you hear the term raw data, they want this for a couple reasons. So while disaggregated data can be used for training or for transportation planning um, purposes, when it comes to enforcement, for example, if the city wants to know how many scooters are in one particular place at a particular time, um, they say that they really need that more granular, more in real time information. Um, another example of, of why cities want this type of data is they might not necessarily trust that the data that they're getting from companies, um, if the companies have a chance to treat it in different ways, they might not trust that the data hasn't been manipulated in, in certain ways. So cities say that they, they want to have this raw data because it provides that ground truth of, of what's really going on. Um, and another reason that I've seen, and this applies more to the uh, transportation network companies, is that cities want this um, raw disaggregated data in order to verify hours worked by different um, TNC companies. So it, it really goes back to, you know, cities wanting to have a reliable access to verifiable data that hasn't been manipulated so they can feel confident that they're making the right decisions with this data. Okay, so TNC, of course, meaning uh, companies like Uber and Lyft, et cetera. Right, right exactly. Oh. I'm wondering, um, now this idea of the mobility data specification, the MDS, this is spread throughout the U.S. and Canada, and you and your co-workers have created an assessment or a guide to help find the middle ground. So can you tell us about the work that you're doing? Yeah, definitely. So within that history of what was going on with, you know, the mobility data specification, with governments requesting 
uh, more data from companies uh, with the lawsuit that's currently going on in California. Uh, there's also a bill in California that addresses this with kind of all of that going on in the atmosphere. Um, myself and my colleague were approached by um, the Mobility Data Collaborative. And now we're starting to get into more, many more of the mobility acronyms. So forgive me. So Mobility Data Collaborative, MDC, which is um, affiliated with the Society of Automotive Engineers. Um, they approached us to build upon existing guidance, existing principles, and try to take that and turn it into some type of tool with guidance where people can, you know, actually use something to go through a process or a framework to start to think about the privacy considerations and some ethical considerations. So that's um, kind of where that was sparked. And for me, it was a really great opportunity because I am all about um, putting things into practice and being really pragmatic um, to any problems that I see. I'm, I'm consider myself a very solutions oriented person. So um, I've been seeing for years, whether it's with privacy or AI or mobility, you know, there's so many new principles coming out. Um, and we see this in the privacy space a lot, you know, the foundational privacy principles like data minimization, um, purpose specification, retention, you know, just really these basic principles, um, which sound really great. So with purpose specification, you know, don't collect data um, unless you need it and specify a, a, a purpose for needing that data. And retention, only keep keep data for as long as you need it. You know, these sound really nice. I think everyone would agree <laughs> that these are great principles to have. But when you're actually faced with, you know, real problems like cities are or with companies, when you want to innovate and, and make new new business ideas, it's hard to take these almost abstract principles and put them into practice. So that is something that personally I saw an opportunity with this project is to take all of this great guidance and these principles and turn it into something that is more operational. So that was one thing that I was really excited to do for this project. Uh, Chelsea, I definitely got the uh, the feeling reading through that, that it, it took to your point, uh, it goes a step beyond just like recreating more principles and saying, here's our, you know, here's our founding document. And, but it, it seemed to put those principles into operation and really kind of walk, walk cities or other users through like, here's how you do this on an ongoing basis. Exactly. Yeah, that that's exactly it. And we, you know, really hope that the mobility data sharing assessment, another one at the MBSA, um, we really hope that it, it does kind of provide, you know, the guardrails, that extra guidance, and, you know, the MDSA as it stands, I really think of it as, you know, a privacy gold standard. I wouldn't really expect too many organizations, whether they're public or private, because the MDSA is really meant to be used by either. I wouldn't expect many of them to be able to take the MDSA whole cloth and plug it into their privacy program. Um, and that's totally okay. And that's why we wanted the MDSA tool 
to be in a Word document. We wanted this to be something that was open and accessible and someone working within a city or a company that's tasked, tasked with looking after privacy could take this document and kind of, you know, customize it. Like, take out what doesn't work, you can add in what does work and really make it your own. And then the guidance document as the second piece um, is meant to have is meant to be instructions for filling out the tool, but people can also use the the operator's manual on its own because it's it it can be a standalone document with guidance. Chelsea, do you in in writing the assessments or does FPF take a position on whether or not the the data being shared between private companies and and cities should be anonymized or or is that up for the, the users themselves to decide? Yeah, it's a great question. Ultimately, it's up to every organization because, and this is something that we recognize and put in uh, the MDSA is that the MDSA is a risk-based assessment. Um, and you'll see that, um, you know, in, in a section of the tool that actually provides a framework for folks to figure out this um, benefit risk assessment. But really it's up, to them, it's up on, it really depends on the risk tolerance. Uh, it depends on the types of mobility data that's being shared. Some types are more sensitive than others. And this is where the use case is so important. And a lot of our conversations with folks in this space, it always comes back to the purpose. Why are you collecting the data? Why are you sharing the data? And you have to make sure that it's the right data that you need for that. So while it would be ideal for only anonymized data to be shared. We recognize that in some cases that data might not be sufficient to meet the purpose, uh, but organizations can use the MDSA to um, justify why that is the case. Now, so you mentioned the whole idea of building on existing guidelines that are already out there. So can you, um, give us some highlights of what are some of the laws and regulations that are already in place, um, if any, um, that provide some, guard, some guardrails here. Right. So in the mobility space, there are some principles that are emerging. Um, so you have some guidance that is from the Mobility Data Collaborative itself um, that we were tasked to build upon. And there's also privacy principles um, for cities that is out of the Open Mobility Foundation, uh, as well as some guidance and principles from NACTO. We hear a lot about the rise of smart cities. So are, are smart cities essentially a wash in privacy concerns, or, or do they usher in an era where the balance between public good and individual rights shifts hard in one direction? Right, so I think this is such an interesting topic for our times. For me, a smart city and the word smart doesn't have to mean technology and it doesn't have to mean, you know, the most advanced technology that's out there. It could just mean, you know, really smart design of public spaces that makes spaces more welcoming to all different types of people. Um, it could mean, you know, a quote unquote dumb people counter that is positioned next to a bike lane just to count how many bicycles go by or how many scooters go by. So it doesn't, like we don't always have to go to the far extreme of, you know, facial recognition, emotion detection systems on every street corner. Um, 
I think there's a there's a there are a whole lot of technologies that fall within that scope. I think the challenge is again figuring out, you know, what is that use case? What is the purpose? And so often I see um, people get really excited about the promise of technologies or the what ifs for innovation. That you know, if we only can collect all of this data. We're sure to find a really good, you know, product or service that can benefit people from the use of this data. So I think it's it's again just going back to what do we want in our cities? What kind of world do we want to live in? And then thinking about what are the best best technologies or just the best uses of data or, like I said, the best design principles to help achieve, you know, what we want for. The benefit of the, the the most amount of people in a city is again something else that we can see is that it's easy to point to benefits, but the benefits might only be for a certain few people or people in certain neighborhoods of cities. So I think it's a it's a big question, Leslie. Again, but <laughs> I think if we go back to you know first principles, the foundation of like of purpose and and wanting to design cities that are really beneficial to the majority, if not all people. We're going to take a short break from our conversation with Chelsea, and we'll be back right after this word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Gentex Corporation, a global technology company that supplies nearly every major automaker with advanced electronic features that optimize driver vision and enhance driving safety. Digital vision features like Gentex's full display mirror, an intelligent rear vision system that uses a custom camera and mirror-integrated video display to optimize a vehicle's rearward view. Connected car features like Homelink, the industry's most widely used and trusted vehicle-based wireless control system that uses radio frequency and or cloud-based wireless control to operate garage doors, gates, home lighting, thermostats, security systems, and other compatible home automation devices. All from three buttons, smartly integrated into your vehicle's interior. And dimmable glass features like automatic dimming rear-view mirrors that use sophisticated light sensors, proprietary gels, and microprocessor-based algorithms to darken the mirror to the precise level necessary to eliminate dangerous rear-view mirror glare. The development and delivery of these features has improved driver convenience and safety around the world. Visit Gentex.com to check out the latest in digital vision, connected car, and dimmable glass technologies. And now back to our conversation with Chelsea Colbert. I have another big picture question for you, Chelsea. And maybe it's along the lines of like, like you said, uh, what kind of world do we want to live in? And I kind of go back to, uh, you know, a few decades ago, there was this rash of airplane hijackings, right? And there was no real airport security prior to that. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, government officials were rushing to install metal detectors and, and lots of people thought, like, passengers are never going to accept this. This is way, this is way out of bounds. Uh, and, and they accepted them, of course. And then, uh, and more recently, we've got the more invasive uh, body scanners at the airports. Uh, and it, it seems like, by and large, everybody has accepted those, uh, or at least, like, let's say, 98, 99% of people. So, so... For the great majority of people, I guess my question is, are they willing to trade their privacy for for some 
you know, modest gains that we've talked about. Is this not a question for most people? Yeah, and I think when, when you're using words like trade or versus, you're always going to make privacy nerds bristle. Because <laughs> uh, we really think that you, know, it, you don't have to have one at the expense of the other. But I totally agree with you and see your point about this rising tension. Um, and I think one area where I'm seeing it is with the regulation of self-driving cars and, you know, ADAS technologies, um, especially when, when we're thinking about, you know, driver monitoring systems, cameras inside of vehicles, where, and I think we're just re really only at the beginning of the debate about cameras in cars, um, you know, whether it's your personal vehicle, um, a ride share vehicle, or if you're a delivery driver, so everywhere on the spectrum, but that is one area where that tension is really only beginning. And, and that is that, you know, great example of privacy, quote unquote, versus uh, public safety. So this is a really interesting area. It's something that I'm definitely following. Let's, let's run with that a minute, because uh, I did want to ask you about the driver monitoring systems being installed. Does the privacy envelope, let's call it, uh, change depending on whether um, I'm driving my own car, if I'm a passenger in the back of a, a ride-hailing vehicle, if I'm employed by some trucking company to be driving their truck? Yeah, so in, in these different spaces, generally, um, the individual's reasonable expectation of privacy would differ between, you know, personal versus, you know, the, the ride share example is really interesting because it's not quite public like a city bus, but it's not personal because it's not your own vehicle. So maybe semi public. Um, and then in the worker context where, you know, privacy uh, rights are really different from other contexts. Um, I definitely do think that there are privacy issues that are raised by the use of cameras in vehicles. I think this is one area where privacy by design is so, so important. Um, and again, going back to that, the use case, the purpose. So if your purpose of using a driver monitoring system is to ensure that the driver is paying attention to the road, they're not intoxicated, they haven't uh, succumbed to sudden sickness, or they haven't uh, become complacent with, you know, level two, level three technologies, and that they're there to take back control of the vehicle. If those are your use cases, I think really important to find the technologies or develop the technologies that achieve that purpose without going beyond that. So for example, do you really need facial recognition? Do you need to identify and know who the human is to meet those purposes? Um, as well as moving a little bit beyond um, camera systems, we, we go into the world of emotion detection, or um, which is super controversial and by no way am I endorsing these technologies, I think, uh, we need so, so much more um, scrutiny on these technologies before they're put into vehicles all over. Um, but these technologies do raise um, additional concerns, I think, that go 
maybe beyond what we consider traditional privacy concerns is usually when we're talking about privacy data protection, people think it's about ownership or control of data. Um, but when we start to use these technologies that purport to detect and analyze and score different um, mental states or emotions, we're getting into, you know, a really, really complicated area. And I mean, there's, there have been so many studies and a lot of research done on this, but one study that's really stuck with me about this is um, a data set which had hundreds of white NBA players, professional photos, and black NBA players, professional photos. And I'm stressing the professional part because um, a lot of times people poke at issues with um, camera systems and computer vision systems because of lighting. So saying professional photos, you know, the lighting is the same for both. The position is the same for, for all of these photos. So this study found that more um, more negative emotions were actually associated with black men's faces compared to white men's, um, regardless if they were smiling or, or whatnot. So there are issues that we keep seeing come up with these technologies. And I think where this can get really complicated and where we need a lot of thought is the concern about false positives or false negatives and what that can mean to someone if you know an AI camera is being used to make a determination or create a score about someone that could impact their insurance or their job. So I see this um, as something that is kind of one of the the growing concerns and uh, a really big issue area for me personally that I want to stay you know on tabs of and, and track this and. I think it's a, it's just, it's really interesting because, and when I was thinking about this question more, because I'm doing some work in this area, I really think that, again, this goes beyond just, you know, data and privacy, because this is about our, you know, our human autonomy, our human uh, dignity. And as more technologies are coming into these spaces in our cars, in our cities, um, I think there's a lot of benefits there, but one concern I have is that humans are kind of treated more like robots, like the robotification of humans. So I kind of think of it where a human is held to the standard of a machine or an AI system without considering the human context. Um, and to give like a real world example of this, um, maybe you know you have a driver and a delivery truck and there's an AI camera on them and they turn their head to look at the side window because they, they wanted to check something to make sure there was nothing there. But the AI camera doesn't have that context. There's no way to have that communication. So the AI camera sees you know, the eyes, the face look away from directly facing the road and the AI camera you know, dings them. Oh, you weren't paying attention. This is knocking off some of your safety score. So. I know I'm kind of getting into the, the weeds and kind of abstract here into the future, but um, I think that this is really a growing, really, really interesting area for this line of work. So, I mean, if anyone's listening that is interested in getting into, you know, AI privacy as a field, there's more than enough uh, to work on in this area.
you know, you're mentioning AI privacy and AI bias, which are huge issues. And you also mentioned the uh, ADAS and the, the whole issues of privacy involving um, cameras and vehicles. So that raises a question for me about what are some of the other topics that you see on the horizon that are really going to be a big deal when it comes to privacy and transportation? Yeah, so there's there's really so much that I'm I'm seeing going on. This could be a whole separate uh, <laughs> podcast episode. I think one thing for me is that I'm really tuned into what's going on globally. So one one trend that I'm seeing emerge, um, and I can use China as an example because they they recently published uh, car privacy regulation and. There's so much going on in China right now with internet and technology regulation. But one thing that really struck me is the the creation, the use of new data classification terms. So a lot of us are familiar with the term personal data, you know, de-identified data, things like that. But in China's regulations, they also have this term called important data. And Really what this is flagging is any type of data that could pose a national security risk. So I think this is an interesting trend in um, the development globally of how we think about data. Um, you know, privacy laws, data protection laws, is th- those are one way to regulate data. But as we see, you know, vehicles, robots, flying cars, what have you go into cities it there's really going to be this connection of everything and um i think people really need to start thinking about the car beyond just the car as its own everything is you know a system of a system it's part of that broader ecosystem and i think that with china picking up on this national security link i think this is this is something that is i i could see spreading around the globe and related to that classification of data is the requirement to only process that data within the country. So these data localization rules for the longest time, you know, data, you know, data is meant to be free. It's meant to be shared. You can't contain it. But I think we're starting to see these restrictions put in with the processing and sharing of data outside of different countries. And I want to go back to something that you uh, brushed on briefly in uh, the whole topic of ownership of data. And we, um, of course, hundreds of data points are coming out of cars every day. So um, who technically owns that data? Yeah, so this is such a such a popular question. And to throw the typical lawyer card on the table, it really depends. So thinking about who owns data when it concerns privacy considerations is not that helpful. Um, what we think about more is about controlling data. So if it's you know personal information that's about me, I should have the right to control uh, what's being done with it. You should tell me your different purposes. You should tell me who you're sharing it with, different things like that. Um, But then what about all of the other types of data? What about data that's being generated from a vehicle that's not personal information, but that is about my 
that well that only really exists because I use the vehicle um, and it's really valuable information. It can go back to the manufacturer, can go to insurance companies, it can go to data aggregators. Um, so there's a lot of value to this. Um, but who owns that data? Oftentimes, I've seen it really just comes down to the contract and the lawyers. You know, if there's any type of data agreement, any type of technology agreement, there's usually always a clause in there that says who owns the data. So I think it's something that's not settled and something that's really interesting about this whole question about data ownership is we're seeing um, people come out with uh, ideas or organizations or different companies to try to enable consumers to make money or provide other services based on their data, whether it's like the data dividend is something I've heard it being called. So I think that that is really interesting for kind of the innovation and, and what is coming out of this space. But I don't think it's an easy answer to really say one entity or one individual owns the data coming from any particular vehicle. Chelsea, I wonder if it's almost a, if an adversarial relationship is developing because on one hand, uh, automakers reached this voluntary agreement probably five or six years ago at this point on, uh, here's our privacy principles that essentially st state that you, the car owner, owns your data. Um, but on the other hand, uh, there's this, this fight going on over right to repair vehicles. And people who want to repair their vehicles are finding out that, that car makers are saying, not so fast, like you can't access that, that's ours. Uh, are, do those two things uh, have a, a, a tension with each other or, or are they not necessarily related? So the right to repair discussion definitely has undertones of ownership. And we usually hear the right to repair when it comes to, you know, our electronic devices. Like I have this laptop, I have this cell phone. Um, it's really, really popular in the firm, <laughs> the, the firm world where, you know, tractors um, are restricted and, you know, farmers want to have access to repair it. But yeah, in the, in the car space, I think it's, it's definitely going to be an interesting area to watch. I'm not sure how it's going to develop. And the reason why I'm, I'm hesitating in saying that is because I heard of, I've been hearing about these different um, technological solutions with more modern cars, maybe more near future cars, where the data from the vehicle is used in a way to almost predict what maintenance it will need. Um, and, you know, as cars become more robots and are have more AI systems included in them, um, they really become more software than hardware. And I think when we tend to think about taking our car to a repair shop, it's more to get the hardware components on a car fixed. Um, but what about the, the software components? A lot of that seems like it could be fixed through over-the-air updates or um, some type of predictive AI analysis that makes the repair unnecessary because the AI predicted it was going to happen and shipped out an update before that could happen. So I think that there's a lot more to come in this discussion.
maybe one last question for you, and it's, it's probably along the lines of a lot more to come, but I did want to ask you about autonomous vehicles. Uh, I know that Congress has been working on a law for, for several years now uh, that paves the way for the deployment of, of AVs in a widespread way. How does the language that you've seen so far take into account privacy considerations in an autonomous future, if, if, it, if they have at all? Yeah, this is definitely something I'm following. I think it's interesting that the, the, the autonomous vehicle or self-driving cars uh, regulations that I've seen, whether it's, you know, Germany just released theirs um, a couple months ago, um, and in the U.S. there were some bills put forward. There are some sections, some nods, provisions about privacy. Um, my questions and kind of concerns, I think about it from, you know, the compliance, the operational perspective. So just really basically, you know, if if an AV federal regulation has a section on privacy, how does that um, how does that work with states that have privacy laws? How would that work if there was a federal privacy law? Something else I think a lot about when it when it comes to privacy and and cars and AVs is that you know a lot of these privacy um, principles or privacy regulations um, kind of set forth you know a rule or restriction or an obligation. But I think what is really interesting in the car space is that these regulations can have a direct impact on the design of the vehicle. And when we're talking about, you know, a vehicle or a robot on public streets, that's really safety critical uh, infrastructure, being really thoughtful about what a privacy rule means in terms of the design of a vehicle really matters because it really could impact the the use, the enjoyment and the safety of a vehicle. And I can give you like a really tangible example. You know, if you go on a website, you're probably going to get a a pop-up for cookies or for consent or something. And this happens, you know, if you spend 15 minutes online going to different websites, these are popping up all of the time. And you kind of have to either, you know, just ignore it and only scroll through and see half the page or you just click it away because you don't want to be bothered or you go into the settings and you really try to figure out what's going on. But I would question whether that really works um, on the internet in our online spaces. And it definitely does not work when you're, when you're in a vehicle. Could you imagine starting up your car and seeing these privacy notice, notices come up? You're not going to want to sit there for 10, 15, 20 minutes and read through. You're just going to click OK because you want to get in the car and you want to go somewhere. Or if it pops up at the wrong time and you're driving somewhere and it it overlays over your navigation screen, you know, so I think like these are just really simple examples, just using the technologies that we know now and our experiences now. But I think that this is something that policymakers should be thinking about when they're thinking about rules that regulate data and privacy when it comes to, um, again, vehicles or robots, or even just walking around our smart cities. At the end of the day, like I'm very, cautiously optimistic about emerging technologies. And I work in this area 
and at a company like FPF, because, you know, I really do believe in the benefits and the promise of technologies, but that's not enough. We also have to think about the flip side to what all of this means. So um, kind of one of my one of my concerns is that I would hate to see the concerns over privacy um, and data use make people, you know, not want to buy a new car and not want to use safety features, um, which I think um, some people in the sector are concerned about with, with Tesla and, and the marketing that by Tesla marketing as, you know, self-driving. And then we just see in the news, all these crashes that it would make people turn away because they're, if we can improve safety on streets, like I said, I'm a huge cyclist. Um, if we can improve safety on streets, you know, for pedestrian cyclists, for everybody by using technology in a really smart way, I think like that's so important. So we shouldn't let privacy considerations or, you know, these concerns over data protection really get in the way. I think that there are, you know, there are solutions to this, but we can't stick our head in the sand either. Thank you, Chelsea, for joining us today. Really appreciate the time and uh, the great discussion today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me anytime. Thank you again to Chelsea for the conversation today. Great to uh, great to get a handle on so many of those issues that maybe I've kind of kind of sort of thought about Leslie, but uh, but not necessarily uh, always at front of mind. Uh, what was your your big takeaway from that conversation? Well, the big takeaway for me was the whole conversation about driver monitoring and how this is going to be an increasing issue when it comes to privacy. So, um, you know, it makes you wonder because a lot of these systems that are coming in now have driver monitoring cameras. And um, I'm sure that people are concerned about where that camera data is going, who's, who gets a chance to review it or see it or keep it. So um, let's stay tuned for that. That's uh, pretty interesting. So um, we've reached the end of the show. Pete, can you tell us a little bit about next week? Yes, Leslie. Uh, next week, another good conversation on tap. This one with Greg Rogers, policy manager at Neuro. Uh, we'll be hearing about the latest developments and deployments uh, from, from Neuro, the delivery bot company that is the first in California to receive a, uh, a commercial deployment permit for autonomous vehicles. We'll be also talking about Neuro's other goals beyond just deployments, but uh, perhaps solving some of the uh, social concerns related to food deserts that they see uh, and see their vehicles being a potential solution to. So that is more to come uh, with Greg next week. Uh, for today, that's it. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Uh, thanks, as always, to our producer, Eric Jones, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>